Welcome to the Liberal Your Podcast, the European Liberal Forum Project. I'm your host, Ricard Silvestre, and welcome back. I hope you're having a great summer, or whatever is left of it, unfortunately. And to restart the second semester on the MLS side of this podcast, since my colleague Leszek from our friends at Liberté Foundation in which Poland already had a first episode post-summer break with a great conversation with the Dr. Nicole Koning, and she's the head of policy at the Munich Security Conference, so you should check that out. But as I was saying, we're going to restart from our side here in Lisbon, and I will bring you two podcasts for the price of one. In fact, this is the first time we do this format here with ELF, but because there's a good reason for it. We have two great researchers and authors that are going to talk about a similar concern, which is the future of the EU relationship with China, where one of the conversations will focus on Africa with Dr. Maria Adel Karai, and the other one will center in the Western Balkans with PhD candidate and friend of the podcast, Laia Komerma. I will introduce each one of these authors with more detail after this intro. On a podcast host perspective, and not making this all about me, naturally, it is interesting to observe that the two researchers with deep knowledge about China and China interaction with the rest of the globe, particularly with the European perspective, independently arrive at some similar points. Just to give you two examples, but dear listener, as you go into the conversations, maybe you will notice more. China is not barging uninvited in host countries. In fact, both in Africa and in the Western Balkans, they are welcome there. And the second point that relates to the first one, both authors agree that we should not alienate China from the world order, but find productive, constructive ways of working together. So with this intro out of the way, Welcome back to the Art Podcast, and I hope you keep enjoying our conversations about liberal values and ideas and the future of the European Union. To bring you the second part of this two-part conversation about the future of relationship between China and the European Union, I bring you Dr. Maria Adel Karai. She's an assistant professor on the Global China Studies at the New York University in Shanghai. She's a prolific author and co-leads the research initiative Mapping Global China. We are going to go into the chapter that she wrote for the ELF publication towards a new European security architecture with the title Infrastructure Diplomacy in Africa Comparing EU and Chinese Infrastructure Initiative. So with no further ado, I bring you Dr. Maria Del Caray. I'm here with Maria Adel Caray. Adel, thank you so much for coming to the podcast. Thank you for having me. It's a great pleasure. Very good to have you here because we're going to talk about something really important, European security architecture, where you and I, by the way, are authors of chapters on this European Liberal Forum publication. And in particular, I asked Adel to come here to talk about her contribution, infrastructure diplomacy in Africa, comparing EU and Chinese initiatives. But before that, tell us a little bit about yourself. What was the path that you took in life to get to the point that we're now talking on the podcast? I studied Chinese uh, in, in, in Italy and in London 
Um, then I was very interested in political science and law, and I did a master in in, in that political science in Bologna. And uh, then I ended up in Hong Kong with a PhD in law, international law and China, the concept of sovereignty. My first book was on sovereignty in China that was based on my PhD. And then I've been in the States uh, for the past uh, eight years, uh, and then between Shanghai and uh, NYU Shanghai and uh, uh, New York, working on China, uh, international law, China and international relations, uh, uh, and Belt and Road Initiative. So that interest in China, how did that came about? It just was the a natural consequence of your studies, or were you always interested in this particular uh, country? I actually had a Chinese friend when I was uh, uh, nine years old uh, in my hometown, and I've always been intrigued. Ever, ever since I met this girl, I was very intrigued by China. Uh, and then once I, uh, I had to decide which uh, university uh, to go to and what to study, I want to go as far away as possible from my uh, hometown. Mm-hmm. And China uh, sounded uh, a very good place, uh, very far away, and and very interesting from a historical, philosophical uh, point of view. And how was that uh, change of scenery? <laughs> Because apparently you liked it since you, you you've done all this work, but I imagine a young a young version of yourself just landed on China. It was. Uh, I remember the first time I went was in 2006. Uh, Uh, after my first year of study Chinese uh, uh, in Rome, and it was shocking, uh, just eating. I remember uh, I never really used much of chopsticks before, and we arrived in, in Beijing, and we were starving, and we went to a restaurant, and I couldn't, uh, I mean, eat. I have to learn how mm. to use chopsticks, and it was very frustrating, but... I've loved China ever since. I'm still in love with the people and uh, the civilization, history, culture. It's it's a fascinating uh, place. Also because it often disproves what we th- we hold as uh, a objective truth, and so it's always a, a very straight, a very interesting case to have as a comparative case. Uh, to look and better understand the uh, uh, Europeans or American and and so forth. So yeah. Well, that's a very interesting point. Allow me to do a follow up on this then, because China is mostly seen as an adversarial uh, country, an adversarial system. But then I do understand there are people like you that are trying to bridge uh, that gap and saying, "Hey, we can work together. It doesn't have to be this way." Do you, do you find yourself like alone in this, like in a big desert, or there are more people doing this? Yeah, so I think academics are more probably like me, but uh, there is, uh, in terms of media or politics, uh, is a bit of a desert. I think mm. there isn't really much interest in understanding fully what China is, or there is just a focus a focus on. Uh, The central government, uh, China was, is often seen as a monolith, but there are so many different aspects and also its people, its history. And now it is in a very challenging time. There's a lot of uh, issues with China, but uh, uh, to avoid also any kind of escalation, wars, etc., it's so important to cultivate uh, a better understanding, dialogue, 
and uh, and and try to avoid stereotypes uh, and the memes about China. There's a lot of misinformation about it and legitimate concerns about China. That's uh, for sure. But uh, also a lot of uh, just stereotypes about it. And we do share the same planet and we do share a, a collective life. So it would be awesome, Adele, exactly to have people working together and avoiding those stereotypes, as you mentioned. And you're doing that. You're doing that job of making us understand Chinese uh, way of thinking and how it relates to us Europeans. The chapter already introduced. But before that, I need your help to introduce a concept that is going to be very important in our conversation and in your chapter, which has to do with the Belt and Road Initiative. I'm sure most of our listeners, they know this, but for the ones that are initiated on this topic, please go a little bit into that. Sure. Uh, the Belt and Road Initiative, it's uh, a infrastructure master plan of uh, China that was launched uh, in 2013 by Xi Jinping. And the idea is to reconnect uh, China with the rest of the world uh, through a series of investments in infrastructures. Uh, uh, the BRI, it's interesting because there isn't an official map of the BRI. There are There is a website, mm -hmm. but... To up to today, we don't know the exact number of projects. And that's why, one of the reasons why, together with a colleague at NYU Shanghai, uh, we are working on uh, this initiative mapping global China uh, that aggregate data of uh, Chinese investments overseas. Uh, and we have over 14,000 14, uh, investment points of China to map it. Uh, but probably there are many more. The initiative is worth a trillion dollars and it tries to address uh, the huge infrastructure gap that exists in the world, in the developing world, but also in the developed uh, world. Um, and by many, this has been seen as a, a soft power strategy uh, by China. Mm -hmm. And there are many reasons for the BRI to exist. There is an economic motivation, and many of these projects have been started by Chinese companies for economic purposes. So there is less of the heavy hand of the state as what we imagine. But then, of course, there is all the kind of soft power and strategic interest of China that tries to create new friends uh, in the world, new allies and friends through investment and economic uh, statecraft. Indeed, and it reaches Europe, our ports, uh, for example, some of them are part of that initiative. And now let's zoom out and zoom to a different part of the globe, because you were just saying that you're trying to make friends with this uh, initiative. And we are going to talk about Africa. But before that, on your chapter, you quote Adam Tozzi and he says, the author, that this is going to be an African century. I'm sure you agree. Please tell us why. Yeah, so the the, the, the main reason for uh, talking about the Africa century is the huge demographic advantage that Africa has over the entire world, uh, pretty much. Uh, if we look to, at China, Europe, America, uh, we are in a, a demographic crisis, so there are very few uh, births. Uh, and uh, new population. And Africa instead has the fastest growing and youngest population in the world. And by 2050, it is estimated that uh, uh, its population will reach 2.5 uh, billion, with a very important proportion of young people entering uh, the workforce. 
And this uh, large labor force can be used to drive economic growth and uh, innovation. Africa is also known for all its natural resources, including oil, gas, mineral, mineral in particular critical uh, minerals that are essential now for technological advancement, for batteries, uh, arable land, uh, uh, and, um, and so this is another uh, kind of uh, point in favor of the African uh, century. There is also an increase in uh, urbanization uh, where Africa is uh, rising uh, rapidly. But of course, there are also many issues to this uh, African uh, century uh, because of uh, corruption, political instability and governance. Uh, it's still very challenging. I think there is a lot of hopes, especially for its uh, demographic uh, advantages. But there are also many challenges. So I'm optimistic. I would love it to be the African century, uh, but we don't have a crystal ball, so it's hard to to tell how. And also with the, with the new technological advancements, uh, who knows how much labor is still needed. Without having our crystal ball working properly, it is interesting that you were mentioning that there's so many opportunities and there's such young generations ready to to, to take that opportunity. Could then we see a pushback through, hopefully, electoral processes of getting those corrupt uh, leaders out of power so that you will have a functioning society, like economically and uh, with investment and with vision? Do you see that happen also? I hope that, but uh, I'm not sure. So even even with uh, democratic processes, it's it's all very unclear. Uh, also, because if you look at our advanced democracies, there are so many issues, including polarization, huge polarization. So even mm. for African countries looking for models, uh, uh, sometimes they look more with admiration China for being able mm. to get things done. Of course, there is still this aspiration to like the democratic values, uh, freedoms, uh, political and civil civil liberties. But at the same time, uh, there is also a lot of fascination for China, more authoritarian model uh, that mm. is able to, you know, uh, put infrastructures in place. Uh, America has uh, big uh, limitations because of all the democratic processes and interests uh, um, that uh, one needs to take into account. Uh, you focus particularly on infrastructure diplomacy on your chapter, and you do mention that there's an infrastructure gap. So there's a lot of initiative, there's a lot of hope, there's a lot of drive, but there are the, that gap. And, and this is quite important not only for our American friends, but also for us in the EU. So please get a little more into detail. What is this infrastructure gap? Yeah, so Africa has a huge uh, problem. I was just reading an article yesterday uh, saying that uh, an American refrigerator uh, used more electricity than an average African in one year. Hmm. The World Bank has also identified the insufficient infrastructure as a cause of high trade costs between African uh, countries. And it estimated that it costs more to ship a car from Kenya to Nigeria than from Japan to Kenya. Um, and Africa intercontinental trade is at 18% of its total trade, and it's uh, uh, one of the world lowest. 
so I think there are all these issues to really integrate uh, Africa together. There's problem with sanitation, electricity. People don't have access to stable uh, sources of electricity, even in the most advanced uh, countries uh, in Africa. Mm. Um, and so this is a real thing. And it's not just Africa, it's the world has a huge uh, um, infrastructure uh, gap with developing countries uh, uh, requiring more than 40 trillion to bridge their infrastructure gaps, uh, especially after COVID-19. Uh, hmm. Well, you know, Americans in their fridges, they, they like big fridges. Big fridges, yeah. <laughs> they have the ice uh, dropping from the, the fridge. I know, I've, I've been there. I know how, how big the fridges are. Yeah. Getting yeah, serious. No, go ahead. Sorry. No, but it's quite, uh, uh, I mean, telling, right, that the refrigerator uh, uses more electricity than one African in, uh, yeah. I mean, average African. Yeah. It's getting serious again. The EU is trying to reposition itself with this kind of connection with the African country. We... European Union, we developed the Global Gateway. Uh, is this an answer to the Belt and Road Initiative? Uh, what is your assessment on this kind of uh, work done by the European Union compared with what the Chinese are doing in Africa? The European Union, similarly to the US, is a bit uh, uh, kind of freaked out about China rise, uh, and it changed uh, a lot of, um, of its policies. And it was very reactive to whatever China uh, was doing, including the Belt and Road Initiative. Uh, and so, for instance, uh, the, in 2018, it launched its European Union Euro-Asian Connectivity Strategy that uh, was uh, uh, aiming to create a sustainable, comprehensive and rule-based approach to connectivity, uh, partly contrasting uh, China BRI, that is considered as uh, um, an initiative that is promoting low, poor governance standard that is not transparent, that is authoritarian, not sustainable, and so forth. And then in 2021, it launched uh, its uh, global uh, gateway, which is a new strategy uh, to develop smart, clean, and secure digital energy and transport links and strengths health, education, and is also uh, very much uh, value-based, so it tries to promote liberal uh, values, democracy, and is committed to uh, invest $300 billion over six years in support of global infrastructure uh, development. And it's clearly a response to uh, China. Uh, the European Union was already investing partly in infrastructure mm. overseas, much more than uh, the US that has a very poor record domestically and almost inexistent abroad. Uh, but I think with this global gateway, uh, the EU is trying to kind of uh, map out all this initiative and bring them under one umbrella, a bit like the Belt and Road Initiative. Uh, before the Belt and Road Initiative started, there were already a lot of infrastructure projects, but then they were kind of... Uh, um, merged together under this uh, discourse of the Belt and Road uh, Initiative. And um, can it compete uh, with the BRI? I think yes and no. Uh, the BRI, it's uh, interesting because it's uh, partly state-led, state although there is sometimes a lack of control of the central government over even over its state-owned enterprises. There are a lot of different uh, interests. But still, there is a government push, uh, uh, state-owned enterprises from China uh, that are um, 
financed partly or they, they have they, they receive subsidies from the government and uh, they hire then Chinese companies so it's a one package that uh, is very quick to implement and there is a lot of state support mm. um, the global gateway um, and also the other G7 uh, uh, build back better world and later the global infrastructure partnership that was launched by and led by Biden they are more uh, they try to leverage the private sector but it's it's a bit challenging in a way China I think is uh, way ahead in terms of uh, infrastructure investments uh, in uh, in Africa and let's stay here for a little bit because and this is my analysis so please correct me if I'm wrong on what I'm going to say next but thinking about these two uh, operations going on in Africa and it as you mentioned the the Chinese have a more like quick implementation methods they are um, even if they're as you mentioned they're centralized sometimes they're not but there is a centralization of the process and it's there's less regulated they're less concerned also with problems of corruption or problems of human rights so global gateway on the other hand it's coming up to africa yeah. and, and saying yes but we do care about the environment we do care about the rights of the workers we do care about corruption again getting back to a first one of the first questions i ask you can can we see a shift in the continent of Africa where this kind of message comes through and as an effect on society, on, on, on the people, on the Africans? I will say, I mean, also when I did some field work in Ethiopia and Kenya and also talking to some African uh, friends and, and colleagues, I think that uh, what they want is infrastructures, building things, mm -hmm. right? They don't, they, of course, they care about... Uh, um, good governance, uh, especially because this is a lot. Of, it's still a lot of money that they invest. Uh, it's a lot of uh, public money that is used uh, to build infrastructure. So, if you follow certain standards, uh, it's more likely that the infrastructure will be sustainable. Uh, it doesn't mm. have uh, negative environmental or social impact. Uh, it's economically economically viable for the future. So there will be return, like if you do proper studies uh, and so forth. So I think some, some of these rules are very good to make sure that the infrastructure will be successful and has a, sustain, a good cycle, like a good sustainable cycle for the future. Uh, but that said, ultimately, they want roads. They want railroads. Mm. They want... Uh, uh, power plants uh, and uh, whoever can build them uh, in a in a quick way uh, in a not too expensive way can win so they like this rhetoric but then ultimately they want uh, the infrastructures so they have a more pragmatical view of yeah. the process yeah Interesting. Very good. Let's skip back to your chapter. There is a section where you say that there be many new synergies that can be found between China and EU. And this goes from the public and the private sectors. This connects to something that you said at the beginning of our conversation, which is the, the need for this proximity, the need for this uh, joint work. What are the challenges here then? How can we make this happen? Yeah, I guess the the primary challenge is now this uh, um, idea of uh, decoupling or de-risking, uh, you know, that move from decoupling to de-risking. And so this view of China constantly as a threat in all sorts of fields that makes also collaboration in things that are reasonable 
almost impossible because it's everything is charged with security uh, mm -hmm. issues, right? You do an investment infrastructure mm -hmm. or like in technology, oh my God, China can and then steal the data. And some of these concerns are totally legitimate, uh, but there are also ways uh, in which uh, perhaps China and, and BRI and the uh, Global Gateway could collaborate. Uh, uh, and there are instances of some projects, very few, where there were also uh, different uh, investors, like the European Reconstruction Banks and China Policy Banks uh, investing together. I don't remember what uh, what uh, project, but I remember seeing that also the World Bank. Um, and also, if China builds uh, railroads and uh, highway or infrastructures, then I think that the uh, uh, European Union can tap into that uh, and build some software, some schools, hospitals, focusing more on education. And also what uh, the European Union can do is uh, make sure that China respects high standards, uh, that doesn't uh, uh, build a suboptimal, mm. like not uh, the best infrastructure, but so keep the standards high. And so, and also there's like the private and public sector. So once infrastructure is built from China, then the EU private sector again can tap in and invest in other aspects where the European Union is stronger. But I also think that infrastructure, if uh, well thought, could be also something that is uh, can have good returns also for the European Union actors. So. Um, um, for instance, uh, one company that is from my town called Trevi that does big drilling, uh, they were complaining how in the past decade China has taken over a lot of projects in Nigeria. Uh, but in the past, Trevi has uh, made fortune in Nigeria. So I think there, there are still there is still a possibility to uh, make profit, maybe less than other uh, kind of investments. But uh, again, even even infrastructure can be uh, very profitable and can do a lot of good to African countries. In World Bank, actually, there's this China Africa Development Fund. Uh, it's one of the eight initiatives uh, that were launched uh, recently at the forum on China Africa cooperation. So, this is as an extra data point as uh, you were mentioning this kind of synergy. Now, as we're getting to the end of our time together, but I have to ask you to please go into what is the last section of your chapter, which is policy recommendations. And without going into all of them, actually, you introduce um, several. And let's leave that for our listeners to read your publication. But tell us a couple that you really care about and you think you should highlight. Yeah, I think, first of all, that infrastructure should not be thought as a zero-sum game and the synergies, as I just discussed before, can be found between what China does and what European Union actors or America do. Of course, being considered of real security challenges, um, and also, I think it's very important not to um, instrumentalize uh, or see Africa just uh, as, a, as a field, uh, as an empty uh, field where Euro European Union and China compete because Africa also has its own uh, agency, its own needs. And so those need to be prioritized uh, even more than our uh, kind of tension, geopolitical competition uh, and so forth. Uh, um, and also be 
inclusive toward China because we promote all these big standards like governance and so forth. And if we start to exclude China, that I think will be counterproductive. And so it will be great to involve China as much as we can collaborate mm -hmm. whenever we can so that China can also improve its own standards, learn from the best practices from the European Union rather than being marginalized and, uh, and you know, seen just uh, in, in a, as a threat. Are they open to that? And if someone knows you do <laughs> because of the connections naturally that you have, are yeah. they open to that? Do you think that there be that synergy also? Well, it's challenging, but there are already on the ground, and I think there should be more, uh, like the, the, the initiative, the fund that you were mentioning before. Uh, and China has learned a lot and has improved a lot uh, in the past uh, decades by, you know, working together with the World Bank, uh, learning some of the standards. And of course, China has a different stand with regard to sovereignty of other countries, so I think it will not... Uh, push for a certain uh, governance uh, uh, conditionalities, for instance, uh, or changes in the host country regulations or, uh, you know, forcing liber liberalizing, but it can learn. And I think it's open to learn. And I think it's also in, it, is in its own interest to learn because these standards are there for something to improve the quality of this infrastructure and the long-term sustainability of uh, the infrastructures. Very good. This is quite a multi-level chess board that we have here in front of us. And you've been uh, very helpful in understanding us some of the key components. You're also a prolific author. And I'm going to ask you to please go a little bit into the work you do and then tell us where can people follow you online? Sure. So my latest co-edited book was on uh, U.S.-China relations, The China Questions 2, uh, that was published last year with Harvard University Press, and is really meant for a broader public. Uh, we uh, gather almost 50 great authors, uh, scholars, and uh, policymakers to discuss some aspects of U.S.-China relations. Uh, and I think, I mean, it's, it's a really fantastic book also for educational purposes. Um, and then I, I, my first book was on sovereignty uh, in China. So how this concept emerged in the course of the 19th century and why it's so important and how it started to define China foreign policy, the question of Taiwan, Hong Kong, uh, Tibet and uh, so forth. And now, as I mentioned earlier, I'm working on this project on mapping global China. And uh, you can go online, mapglobalchina.com. Uh, and um, I have a Twitter account and a LinkedIn account. Uh, I'm not that active, but sometimes I post things there. Very good. I'm going to put all these links on the show notes. Uh, please go get the books because, as Adele was saying, it gives you a good perspective not only on how China developed these ideas on sovereignty, but also the questions relating how China relates to the world, and now this uh, new mapping of how uh, China is extending through Africa and all the way to Europe with the Belt and Road Initiatives. I've been talking with Maria Adele Karai. Adele, this was amazing. Thank you so much for your time, and thank you for talking to me. Thank you so much. My pleasure. Bye. 
I'm back. Just a reminder that you can find this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Stitcher. And if you feel like it, give us a five-star review. In that way, you can help us spread even more liberal values and ideas. And this is all for now. I'll be back soon with more podcasts. Until then, let's keep making the world a better place. This podcast is produced by the European Liberal Forum, co-founded by the European Parliament, and have the support of the social liberal movement Think Tank in Portugal and Liberté Foundation in Poland. The views expressed herein are those of the speakers alone, and these views do not necessarily reflect those of the European Parliament and or the European Liberal Forum. <laughs> <laughs>